0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. So today is a special day because in in some senses it's a conclusion of a big portion of um, Jeremiah. So we've been in the judgments and the oracles and the sermons of Jeremiah for the past nine years. And that's that's not true. Um, For the past... You know, six months or so. But it's it's to me it's felt longer because it's kind of a repetitious thing where God is um, bringing His judgment against Judah, and He's trying to say it in different ways in order for them to get it and to repent and to to turn away from their sin and to turn back to Him. So today we'll be. Um, out of those 25 chapters will be the last proper sermon judgment. We'll, we'll get to some other prophetic acts that Jeremiah did, some interactions with kings and priests and false prophets that Jeremiah did. But next week, we're going to start more of the upswing of Jeremiah, which is going to lead us into the Book of Consolation for the Christmas Advent series, um, which has to do with the New Covenant and the fact that in the midst of 52 chapters of all of this judgment and this trying to say things like it is and people not returning that God still has a plan for his people post-exile, post this taking away Um, of them into a foreign land, into a foreign place. He still has a plan for his people, Judah, and he still has a plan for us that is realized in Jesus Christ. And so it's prophesied the New Testament. And so uh, month of December, we're going to be going through that portion of it. But today we get to be still on a little bit of a downward motion, um, which is always good because ultimately it always brings us to this place of humility and of brokenness and to remembering our need for the mercies of Jesus and the mercies of Christ and who he is. Not just looking back at the life of Judah, but in my life, in your life in particular, and what's going on. So to prime the text today, two questions. Actually, one question and one little story. Uh, First, we're going to be in Jeremiah 17, if you want to follow. This is one of the more famous passages of Scripture in Jeremiah because it talks about the heart a lot. This section of Scripture has two small motifs that it visits a couple times. We'll get to the second one in a second. But first, I'm going to read something, and I want you to think of what I'm actually talking about. I'm not going to tell you what I'm talking about. I want you to think. John, you're not allowed to answer. Probably Christy either because you're medical people and you know this stuff. So so what is the it that I'm talking about? It drives you in behavior. The desire, and, hold on, hold on. the desire and need you have for it is powerful. It envelops you. It is part of who you are. Without it, your cells begin to shrink, including those in your brain. Space grows between mind and skull, between mystery and solidity. Blood vessels pull away and can rupture. Your head hurts. Your legs cramp. You become disoriented and confused, and then the hallucinations come, providing a mild euphoria as smokescreen to where you're actually heading. Your kidneys, which are supposed to cleanse body of waste, start to fail. Your other organs follow suit. Your blood volume dissipates while the waste inside of you has no way out. Even as you are emptied, there are still toxins seeping deeper within. You can medicate to help with the pain, but medication won't cure the cause. So what is it? What happens? What What is that? Oxygen? Well, yes, so water. Water, being dehydrated. So that was um, a poetic rendition of the... Founder of the National Kidney Association, he was talking about how many people suffer from being dehydrated or just don't have clean water throughout the world. And he was kind of telling about the breakdown medically of what happens to your body when you don't have water, when you don't have water, when you're not hydrated fully. So all those things that I said were physical things, some mind things, but physically also. In this text, you're going you're gonna to hear a little bit here and there about our absolute need for spiritual water, for spiritual life that hydrates us, that fills us, that takes us in. Second question, this is to discuss among the people around you, what are the things we do or do not write down? What are the things we do or do not write down or should or should not write down? So just think, what are the things in your life that you typically write down and is there any kind of common thread to them? What are the things that you do write down? What are the things that you wouldn't want to write down? Just think about it and talk for a minute. One minute. Talk to each other. What are the things you write down? Okay, so what were some of the answers? What are things that you write down typically? It can either be uh, philosophically I write down things that I don't blah, 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 or do blah, 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 or it can be I write a grocery list. I didn't hear any of that. Appointments? Appointments, okay. Things you need to remember: phone numbers, thank you notes, goals. Mike, goals, goals, passwords. So does that go on the do or do not write those things down? Ideas. What? What was that? To-do lists, yes. That things that are important. What are things that you don't want to write down? Secrets. secrets, good. Yes, Christy. Yes. Anytime Christy says something publicly, I'm excited. <laughs> Feelings. Me- memories, certain kind of memories. Mistakes. Facebook posts. <laughs> Hallelujah. Good, good. Passwords. Thank you. Thank you. So in our text today, there are two main writing things that you'll, that you'll hear. One of them is um, an etching that is happening, and this etching is happening on the people's hearts and also on what the, the horns on the corner of their worship sacrifices, on their altars. On their altars, there were these four horns in Judah, and they're not necessarily... We don't exactly know what they meant in the context, but what we think is that a horn was a symbol of power in the ancient Near East. Some people think that uh, on the altar that these horns were there to tie ropes over the, the animals that they were sacrificing, but that's not the case because they would have already been dead by the time they got to the altar. And so there's stuff being written on hearts, and there's stuff being written on their altars, and there's also names that are being written in the dirt and in the dust to symbolize the fact of death today. The other thing we're going to notice is the idea of water, like I said before, and what exactly is our need for water and how oftentimes we have this water right in front of us that we can take and we are so thirsty and we need to be hydrated, and yet what happens is that we take something else that might be wet but is not necessarily something that can ultimately satisfy us, something that actually fulfills um, what is within us? So we're going to step through this this uh, this passage, kind of verse by verse, a little bit. I'm just going to make a couple comments that will lead us to our communion time and Eucharist time. So Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 3a. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart, and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars. And their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. So here, this passage starts out that there is kind of this where Judah would not remember their sins, that they would not really, truly, truly say what their sins were and hence repent and turn back to God. God, Jeremiah, is saying that the sin of the people is now being written on the deepest places of them they have chosen this sin to such a degree that is part of who they are now. That it is written on their heart. And it's not just written, it's engraved on their heart. Their heart is not this chalkboard or this whiteboard that you can just take this eraser and go ahead and and erase that off and then it's fine. It's actually engraved. It's etched into their heart, into the tablet of their heart. Likewise, they can't necessarily take any kind of paint and just paint over and see it's not here. Because if you ever look at engraving, like if you go to um, like DC and the monuments and stuff, it's actually set into the stone. It is set into the stone. So you can color it all you want, but what is there is still going to be seen. You can color it white or blue or purple or whatever color you want, but it's not actually going to cover over it because it is etched into the deepest places of them. And their sin is also etched into their places of worship their sacrifices, where God would have this pure worship that would be turned towards him, that would acknowledge sin, the people of Judah, God's people, continually over and over and over again would make these gestures towards the living God, would make these gestures towards God the Father, saying that, yeah, we'll worship you, we'll sacrifice these animals, we'll do the blood offering, we'll do the peace offering, we'll do this and that and everything else, except they did all those outward things, and yet what didn't change inside? Their heart. Their soul. And so now, here in Jeremiah 17, those things are etched in. And it even says that um, it says how their children will remember their altars and their asherim. Again, another uh, foreign god that they would have been worshiping at that time. Beside every green tree and on the high hills, they would have these little places of worship that wasn't for Yahweh, but they would go down the street into South Hills Park, and next to a green tree there, they would set up a little bit of an altar, a little bit of a shrine, and they would, yes, thank you, God, thank you, Yahweh, the one true God, but then they would also be worshiping these lesser gods because somehow they felt like they fulfilled or gave them what they needed as compared to the temple God, as compared to Yahweh. And so Judah, who would not remember their sin, can no longer not remember their sin because it's just etched onto them. It is part of who they are, both in who they are as individuals and even in their corporate worship, that this is the reality of life. Jeremiah, over and over again, like I said, wanted the people to turn back to God for this exile not to happen, and yet it was going to come. It was going to come. So, verses 3b to 4 Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The promises of God were always included land to some degree to Israelites, right? Because he was going to bring them out of Egypt and where was he going to put them? Yeah, into the promised land. That he was going to take a people that did not necessarily have this home and give them a home. Even the promise to Abraham had to do with land. And so there's this promise of land that's going and this actually happened where God gave his people this land, gave Israel, Judah, that whole land there. And yet he's saying that because of this sin, this thing that I gave you, you need to be removed from it. You need to be taken out of the, the very place that I want you because you're, you're distorting it. You're not only distorting it, you're defiling it. And I want to give you a home. I want to give you a place to be and to rest. And I gave that to you and yet you're not finding rest there. What you're doing is that you're causing trouble with other people. You're worshiping other gods. You're just thinking about yourself in that. So if uh, you weren't here at the meeting last night, um, or maybe if you were, that thing back there, if everybody wants to look at that, that, that thing, that big box back there, that cube in the corner there, that's called a sukkah. Everybody say sukkah. And last night was kind of a partial celebration of the Festival of Tabernacles, which is festival the sukkah. Sukkah is a tabernacle, sukkah is a tent. And so in this festival is one of the three pilgrimage festivals that Israel was commanded by God to do to remember what God had did, what God had done. And what happened is with the festival of tabernacles, they were like, I want you to remember that I took you out of the land of Egypt, which was kind of the Passover meal. But I also want you to remember that during those 40 years that I tested you because of your rebellion in the wilderness that I still provided for you that your shoes didn't wear out, your clothing didn't wear out, you always had something to eat and something to drink. And you were taken care of. Might not have been uh, land flowing of milk and honey, right? But you had, you were taken care of. I was taking care of you even in the midst of your rebellion. And so Sukkah is this temporary shelter, this temporary tent or house that they would set up so that at night and during the day that they wouldn't get burned by the sun or the rain would you know, run off and then they would take it down and they'd You know, travel another 50 miles and then set it back up. And to remember the fact that God provided for you in the wilderness. But God also, for Judah and for us, had a better place for them to go. And a better place for them to be. The sukkah, the temporary sukkah, was never meant to be their home. The idea of wilderness was never meant to be their final resting place. God always had this promise for his people to take them into a good land. And the sukkah is important for the time. So last night my family couldn't be here because uh, my daughter Aubrey was in the hospital Friday night into Saturday for breathing issues. And she had to get medicine uh, in the hospital to open up her lungs for, you know, 24 hours in order to take her home and do those treatments. And so, but yesterday when I went in to visit her, the, the uh, pediatric bed, actually when I looked at it, reminded me of a sukkah. Because of the way it was, it had, it had kind of sides on it. It had like a tarp over the top of it because Christy can tell you why it does that. But just to keep out germs, I guess. But I looked at it because sukkah, sukkah was on my mind, which I know Sukkah is always on everybody's mind, is I was just like, it's like this little tabernacle that she has, this little tent. And it's one of those things though. like that tabernacle, that tent, that medical bed that she was in was good. She needed to be there. She needed to be taken care of. But that place was not her home. And so while God was providing for Aubrey and getting her the care that she needed in this wilderness experience of her health, she was meant to be home with her mom and dad. She was meant to be home with her sisters. And so people of Israel, likewise, God provided for those people, provided for Judah in the wilderness and took care of them, but they were meant for a home. And so God brought them into a home, into the promised land. But now he was taking them out of the promised land in the exile because the home became broken. It became a broken home, not at all, which is one of the the motifs that Jeremiah goes in over and over and over again. The fact that it's not the idea that God did something wrong in caring for his people. The idea is that his people over and over again just ignored God, didn't listen to the rules of his house. One of the interesting things in Jeremiah, it's actually at the end of this chapter that we're not going to go to, Jeremiah talks about how uh, God is going to be taking the people out of the land in order to provide rest for the land. He says that in all the time that kings ruled over Judah, there wasn't actually a proper Sabbath that was taken. And so now, so again, something that is very near and dear to God's heart, Sabbath, resting in him, especially back then with the Torah. What he was doing is he was removing the people from the land so that the land itself can rest so that the land itself could experience some kind of a Sabbath rest. Land was always part of God's promises, and it still is today. Again, the ultimate ver- version of, of heaven, of the afterlife, is not the fact that we're going to be disembodied spirits or ghosts. It's not going to be that we're going to be floating around uh, with the uh, Charmin baby toilet paper angel in heaven. It's that there's going to be an actual resurrection of some crazy kind. And that the world itself, even though there will be some kind of dissolving and destruction, will be renewed. And the whole of the world will be completely and fully under God's sovereign reign. Like, to the nth degree. Yes, it's like God is right now in charge, right? But we see that things aren't the way they should be, right? We can all attest to that. We can all not turn a blind eye to that but that there is a time coming when the completion of what came on the cross will happen. It's not just going to happen with us as individuals. It's not just going to happen as us as people, but all of creation. As Romans said, all of creation groans for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed and for this redemption and this revelation to happen. Salvation is bigger than just us. And thank God it includes us though. Like praise the Lord, right? And so this idea that Jeremiah is saying to Judah, so going backwards again now, the fact that I'm going to take you out of this place, the heritage that I gave you, I'm going to remove it from you because of the ways that you treated yourselves, how the ways you treated me, the fact that this home that I gave you just ended up breaking over and over again, both literally um, as far as the way things were being run, but also spiritually and going after other gods and other idols, having other lovers come into the house right again how how horrible would that be hey naomi i love you also i hired a prostitute tonight i hope that's okay and that language is used over and over in jeremiah the idea that god yahweh is the one true god and he is the one we're supposed to be with and yet we bring in these other lovers so god we're good with you but we also need these other lovers to satisfy us which is a complete uh, fallacy so then we move on to Proverbs, okay? So verse um, 5, there's three Proverbs that Jeremiah uses in this section. The first one has to do with trees and water. The second one has to do with the heart. And the third one has to do um, with chickens or birds, something like that. So um, did you stop that, Barry? Or did? Okay, just wondering. I was wondering as I was playing this in the background if anybody was going to get sick from the constant— Really? Yeah? Okay, sorry. I— I told Barry, I was like, if somebody gets sick, we, we should probably just freeze frame it or whatever. And I'll get to why that's up there in a second. But in these three Proverbs, which I'll read, um, the big thing is that there's a peer, an appearance of life, an appearance of life in these Proverbs, an appearance of life in these Proverbs. And yet is life actually there? Is life actually there in that shrub that is in the wilderness? Like, oh, I see that shrub over there It must be alive because it exists. Is there actually life going on in this heart that I see while well, you're doing these outward things, so the heart must be alive? Is there actual life uh, coming from this, the idea of this bird, uh, this idea of taking care of her own chicks, her own, or is that somebody else's brood? Is that somebody else's stuff? And you're just kind of jumping in on this, being like, yeah, I'm, I, I birthed this. I gave life to this. So these are, think of these as Proverbs that Jeremiah inserts here. Thus says the Lord... Cursed is the person who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. That sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for at it le its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So here a very common imagery of trees or shrubs or a combination there. We have these two trees these t- two shrubs, and one of them can kind of look like it's alive because it's physically there. But just because a tree is standing, just because a shrub is there, does not mean that it actually has any life in it. And so Judah technically exists. It is there, it is functioning, it is, it is, uh, is a city, it is still alive, it is still doing what's, up. but at the root of it, it's completely dead. Because it doesn't put its trust in the Lord. Instead, it puts its trust in these other gods. It puts its trust in itself. It puts its trust in power and wealth and fame rather than in Yahweh. And so no good is actually going to come out of it. And it's going to be parched. It is thirsty. And it keeps trying to get water from these places that water is not actually at. Compare that to the tree that um, is compared to like the person who trusts in the Lord. And the, the funny thing here is, is it doesn't say that the heat doesn't come for the person that trusts in the Lord, right? It says that when the heat comes. So the heat is still coming, but the, the question is, are our roots being sent out into the deep places of God, into the simple places? deep places of God. That when things hit us and when things strike us and when things don't go our way and we feel like there is no water from heaven coming down, that there's still this well of H2O, of God's spirit, that is deep within that our roots are being sent out to feed from. Because stuff is going to happen over and over again in our lives where Things aren't going the way we think they should, that the heat is coming, drought is coming, drought is here. And I feel so parched that I'm looking to the heavens to rain down. What if we just need to send our roots out deeper? And the thing is with roots is that they're not seen. Fruit is seen, but roots are not seen. And so we send out our roots and that's the thing that actually nourishes us. And as the text says, as those roots go out and are being fed by that deep water, It does not cease to bear fruit. So even in the midst of a drought, what is this thing doing here? This tree that hasn't rained forever, and yet it's still producing fruit. How is that even possible? It's because it sent out its roots, and it connected with that deep place that God provides. But Judah didn't do that. Next, the heart is deceitful above all things. Verse 9. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So, again, um, I actually want to read on the back of your bulletin, it's the message translation of this verse, which is great. Sometimes Eugene Peterson is a little bit um, uh, kitschy with his language, and I'm kind of like, eh. Other times, man, his commentary language is great. So, that same verse in this way. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be, because Judah was pretending that everything was okay. I, oftentimes, you oftentimes, can pretend that everything is okay, and it's not. So why I have this back, oh, hey, it's back, Um, this thing in the background going on and on is the fact that um, we can look at the text and be like, oh, the heart is deceitful and wicked and yes, 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 but the connotation behind the words is almost more so like it's a puzzle. Like it's really hard to actually know what's going on. It's almost like a labyrinth where you're stuck in this thing and there's a left turn and a right turn, and you think the right way to go is right, but it's actually the right way to go is left, but you're very convinced that the righteous way is this way, and yet the righteous way is that way, and the heart is this complex thing. Who can understand it? It deceives itself at times, a lot of the times. But, as the next verse says, God does know the heart. And so while you yourself as a person don't even necessarily know your own heart to some degree, God, in his love and his wisdom and his infinite everything, does know your heart, does know the heart of his people. And he doesn't uh, come to us and pretend in a way like, oh, well, you say your heart is like this, so great. Or you say your heart is like that. Okay, well, as long as you say that. No, God actually knows us and he tests us. And that can be scary, right? Because of that stuff that's etched on us or that can be etched on us. But God is not into playing pretend, God is not into um, just doing stuff for looks of it. He's not into Judah and Israel worshiping externally and yet inwardly being dead and not having anything actually within them. He wants the fullness of life to be revealed in his people, in his kingdom, in all of his creation. Verse 11. Like a bird that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is the one who gets rich, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. So again, this idea of the appearance of life. Oh, I always pick on Jim. Jim, he's a rich guy. Jim's rich, you know, he, he's you know millions of dollars in his bank account. Um, Jim, like, oh, he must be doing something right, and he must have gotten those things in the right manner. and He, he must have worked hard. Uh, his books are clean um everything like that because obviously if a man's rich god has blessed him to be rich and everything's fine and yet we know not jim jim's a jim's a great man um is that riches don't necessarily mean blessing from the lord above but rather there's deceitful ways of getting resources and riches There's deceitful ways of making yourself look good. There's deceitful ways of bringing your purpose into the situation rather than God's purpose in the situation. And it looks good, but it's not actually the Lord's ways. It's not actually what the Lord has said. And so there's this appearance of life. And yet behind, if we look, it's somebody that's actually oppressing people in order to um, bring freedom to this other thing. Or somebody that's taking advantage of one person in order to Uh, lift up this other person there's always this kind of deceitful like puzzle how can i make this fit here so i look good where i can get something from them and get something from them but still give out something so the public persona of me is good judah was doing that Uh, again we we don't do that kind of stuff here in america or as individuals but god sees the heart i was being sarcastic there but god sees the heart and he sees the actuality of life that is there so the last verses um, are kind of a, not a benediction, but like a uh, a response um, to this, to the fact that there's this etching of sin on the heart and on the altar. There's this fact that um, the people are remembering their sin. It's so part of them. God is going to take away the stuff. There's this appearance of life over and over again that Judah wants to put out there, and yet they're Utterly dying of dehydration. They need water. Uh, They're trying to make themselves look good. Their heart is not being actually shown in their deeds. All this other stuff. In verse 12, Jeremiah says, A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. They have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living water. So not only do we got, get this writing in the dirt, this idea of um, death that is going to be brought about by those who forsake the Lord that we're going to experience, but also that we it's saying that we have forsaken the fountain of living water, God himself that we run to poisonous things that might wet our whistle. We run to stuff that is not water, that has some kind of watered-down base in it. And we're still like, why am I so thirsty? Why am I so empty? Why am I so, I don't have energy. I'm talking spiritually here. I don't have this and that. And there's always a time for rest in our lives. I'm not saying that, but in the context of this, it's because the people of Judah are utterly dehydrated, that parts of their system and of their spirit are just shutting down. Why? Because they forsook the living water. They forsook the fountain of living water, which was God himself. Great, right? Great. Sweet. If we take the judgments of God seriously, we also need to take the promises of God seriously. And both of those things always need to be in play. If we take the promises of God seriously and ignore the judgments of God, we're in no better territory. Because we're actually not uh, aligning ourselves with what God says. And we're just like ignoring that part and being like, yeah, give me the good stuff. Conversely, though, we can stay and get, you know, heap uh, uh, condemnation on ourselves for the fact of what we have done. And we cannot see the promises and the provision that God is actually doing in the midst of this junk and in the midst of this darkness and in the midst of this maze where we can't find a way out. The good news is, is that he knows the way out and he knows how to adjust things in the big grand scheme of things that would take hundreds of years and thousands of years and however many years to happen. But he knows how to bring wholeness and fruitfulness and reconciliation to all things. So the gospel and the prophets is, connects to this distinctly. So our heart is etched with this sin, right? In Ezekiel 34, the promise of God, the provision of God is saying to Judah, ultimately to us too, though, is that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take water. I'm going to clean you of your uncleanliness. And I'm going to pour this water out on you, and it is going to clean you. Not only is it going to clean you, but then I'm also going to take that heart that was in you that has that stuff etched, that sin etched, and I'm actually going to take it out of you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this other heart that I've created, I'm going to put it into you. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit so that you will be my people and that I will be your God. And so, yeah, we can't necessarily erase this etching that's on this old heart. And we don't have to. Because instead, God gives us a new heart. And so in Ezekiel, he gives us this new heart and this new spirit. Later in Jeremiah, it says that in this new covenant, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write my law. I'm going to now write my Torah on your heart. So instead of it being this idea of sin being written on our heart, his ways and his grace and his love and his judgments in a good way are now written and being written on our heart. So there's this water that cleanses us, but it's not just cleansing us. It's actually taking out the old and putting in the new. And then with that new heart, well, that's a blank slate. What's written on that new heart? Oh, God's laws, God's ways, God's love, God's grace is now written onto that. Be like, Justin, that's great or whatever, but we've read through Jeremiah a ton. The Lord is kind of forsaking us, and he kind of has the right to, forsaken us, to forsake us because of everything we did. And while there is a, a legality and a um, truth to that, to show the absolute um, devastation of our sin, that's also not where the story ends. That going into exile isn't the last page of scripture. Going into exile is not the, the last movement of God, of his people. I want to read, uh, so Ezekiel, new heart, new spirit, Jeremiah, on that heart, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write my Torah, my law onto you. Like is he gonna, but does he remember us? Does he remember us? We remember, as we go to the table, we remember Christ, but just as we love because Christ loved us, we also remember God. Why? Because he remembered us, and he remembers us. Isaiah 49 is the last prophet. I want to talk about the new covenant and how he provides. So verse 14 49, 14, 49, 14, Isaiah forty-nine, fourteen. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. They had a good right to say this because of everything we went through the past couple months. All of Judah's sin. God even very closely, if not directly, said, I am no longer remembering you in the, in the heat of the moment that I'm going to give you over, that I'm going to cast you away, that I'm not going to remember you, you're done. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Isaiah continues, God continues, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these, so the answer to that is no. No. That a mother that is holding a child, nursing, can she just forget that he's there? No. Even, even if these may forget, I, the Lord God, will not forget you. Now listen. (laughs) Just as sin was engraved on our hearts, we need to remember that our names are engraved on God's hands. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, speaking to Jerusalem and to Israel right now, the city, okay, um, are continually before me. He's remembering the people, the names of the people, but he's also remembering the people of the people, you know, like the corporate nature of his people. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. And so, this idea that these people that ended up being uh, bringing the desolation and the judgment of God, God is going to remember His people. He's going to remember Judah. He's going to remember Israel, um, the people of God because it's engraved on his hands. And he's going to actually bring them back into the land. And it's not just going to be back into that land, but through this new covenant through Jesus Christ, the the very nature of that new covenant is going to explode into the world, that it came all the way over to a country that was not yet even known and come to us here today. That the gospel of Jesus Christ was going to come out of that heart of God in order to reconcile both Jew... Israel and Gentile. Probably most of us are Gentile in here. But even if there are uh, Jewish Christians in here, that they will also be reconciled. And it's because he remembers us. Like having something written on your hands, you don't forget that stuff. I, if I'm lucky, and this isn't to sound spiritual, it's going to sound the opposite of that, is that if I'm lucky, I, I, I try to fast once or twice a year. And because of my eating habits, I my hands to tell me not to eat things. Because what ends up happening is that I'm just, so like say when I was at my computer job, I would just be like, oh, in the kitchen, getting a a cup of water, fasting from food that day. Oh, look, there's somebody brought in some apples or some chips or whatever. And my hand goes directly for it. And like not even thinking that I'm fasting. And it comes to it and then I see it. I'm like, oh, that's right. I remember that something else is going on here that I need to recall. Now, Unless you're somebody that, you know, we don't eat, we use our hands a lot. We don't, I don't think, unless you're a two-year-old, you don't eat without your hands. I mean, maybe in like a pie-eating contest or something like that, you would do that. But the fact that God's hands have us etched, engraved, our names etched on there, means is that our names and those city walls, both individually and corporally, are always before him that they're always before him, that he sees us, that he remembers us, and we remember him because he first remembered us. Excuse me. But how does all that actually happen or occur? What's the catalyst to that? And that'll bring us to the table. Team, you guys can come, worship team, you guys can come back up. So all of this happens, the new covenant happens through the work of the Spirit of Christ, which is already finished, but not yet complete, okay? So listen to that. Through the, all of this happens through the work of the Spirit, which is already finished, but not yet complete, right? Because on the cross, Jesus was saying that it is finished, that the things that he came to do in order to ransom us and really all of the world from um, sin that would align with his heart, that it was finished on the cross. And yet also Paul later would say something as though, I know that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it which means that it's not completed yet. So I can understand in the Christian life how there are these frustrations. Like, if this new covenant is actually true, and I have a new heart because I trusted in Jesus, and what he did, not of my own accord, not trying to be a facade, being like, I am a sinful man, I need God in all aspects of my life, I need to be forgiven, I need to reconcile with my neighbors, with people that I've hurt, all of that stuff. That if this, I actually have this new heart in me, why the heck don't I always live out of it? Right? And then that makes us go backwards, be like, well, if that's the case, then it's because I don't have the new heart. That, I don't want to say, we just went through wisdom literature um, the past couple months in, in Cornerstone up at, uh, in the upper room for class, and I don't want to make direct statements. That could be, but that could be an option, okay? It could be that you don't know the Lord. And there's some kind of religious thing that you've walked through most of your life that was external, but not necessarily internal and external, where the heart and the hands and the mind were all connected. That's a possibility. I don't want to deny that. But there's also this other possibility that God just has us in a work in progress and in process. That he is continually in his grace and mercy, that he's not dropping on us this, but like rather he's calling us into himself to remember who he is and to show us and to teach us and for him to be our rabbi and for him to be our disciple and for him to be the one that forms us. And so you can be frustrated. This week, I had a couple. So this week, I had a, a blow up at Eden, my daughter, that I shouldn't have done. So I, had a, I, I shouldn't say had. I confess that to Naomi and be like, yeah, I definitely did something I shouldn't have done. And then it makes me think, so all the times I mess up, that just means that I don't actually have this new heart. I don't actually have this new. I think I trust in Jesus. And again, I don't want to deny the fact that we, need, we do need to be born again, but there's also this idea that God is working on us. He is authoring. He is continuing to write on our hearts his ways. And it is this process of grace and of love towards us for us to continually be in fellowship and relationship with him and one another that is part of his plan. So I don't want you to be discouraged by the fact that, well, I don't feel that. Just so you know, you're not alone in that. But I also want you to know that God is and has if you're a follower of Jesus, done something in your life and that he is doing something and that he is faithful to complete that thing which he started in you. Might not be till death. Might not be till the fifth death or whatever. There's no fifth death. But just the fact that it's this long journey. So I don't want you to get discouraged in the fact of that happening. One of the other last thing I'll say about Jesus and water, John 7. So one of the uh, ceremonies uh, at Sukkot Uh, with uh, the Sukkah and stuff. It was also a harvest festival as an in-gathering of their fruit. Pentecost was this festival of the grain offering, but then there was also this festival Sukkot where they had the fruit offering that came in. And so it was a harvest festival to some degree. And one of the things, um, at least later in Jewish culture, that they did that Jesus uh, used as a symbol that they did is that they would either on the corner of a stage which I did this last year if you remember they would have a water libation which they would take a jug of water from a certain place and they would pour it out just as a thanksgiving that God provided water for that season in order to uh, provide for the crops and to also um, ask God like this water is sacred because we need it to live symbolically and literally from an agricultural standpoint but we're going to pour it out we're going to give it away because we know that even if we don't have this cistern of water here, that you can still provide for us, that you can still give to us. There was also this other thing where they probably had a big tub, uh, maybe a little bit shorter than, you know, tip to tip here, and they had a bunch of water in there. And at the last day of the festival, what they would do is they would take that tub and that they would pour it over and this water, kind of like a mini waterfall would come out into the streets and they would praise God and thank God for the fact that he provided and looking forward and trusting in his provision into the next season of life. And it's at that point that Jesus speaks. John seven thirty-seven. On the last day of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit whom he believed, sorry, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so it's not just that, so again, do you see that there? So we forsook, we have forsaken the fountain of living water. And we don't go to it. Judah didn't go to it. They went to other streams. And they had these other cisterns that were broken and couldn't hold anything, couldn't hold any kind of water, constant emptying. And so what new heart, uh, God remembering us engraved on his hands, the idea of writing his Torah, what then through Christ and through the Spirit happens is that that thing of going to God actually somehow gets placed within us. And so that fountain of living water, which is the Spirit, of Christ is now within us. And that now hydrates. Us. It's not that we have to necessarily go to this special place or this special place to get filled up, but that the Spirit of God is with us at all times. And as we gather and when we're in by ourselves in places of darkness or hiddenness, praising God or lamenting, in all of those spaces, there is still this river of life, and we just need to send out our roots And because of the spirit of Christ is there, this water will and is at times and does flow out from us. And again, it's that question, Justin, I don't feel that way. I get it. And yet we hold on to that truth that this is true. And maybe our mind and the actuality of how it works out, we kind of have that, you know, we're putting certain expectations on how that should look as far as the spirit, this living water pouring out. But we continually cry out to God. We thank him for the fact that he has given us water. We thank him for the fact that he remembered us because of his, our names are written on his hand. We, we remember that we are broken cisterns, that we are broken pots, but that as his glory comes out of us and flows through us, his beauty goes to more and more people. So instead of us being a body, they're so concerned about having it all together. I'm not saying that we put that on anybody. But the church doesn't need to have it all together for the glory of God to come out of her. And many times it's in our broken places that the glory of God is most revealed. But it's in those places that we need to be honest and vulnerable and both have a a hand to our heart saying, I have no idea what's going on. I'm sorry I did this. And also a hand to the sky that praises God for who he is and the provision of Jesus Christ, who washes away our sins, who refreshes us and renews us every day. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word in Jeremiah this past couple uh, months. um, There was some hard stuff to to swallow. Um, And not to say you don't have strong words for us in Jeremiah coming up, but I also just thank you for the whole of your scripture that comes to us. And I also want to thank you, Father, for the provision that you make for us, Um, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of tragedy, God, that you're there with us. We might not understand it all. Uh, but we lift up our voices. You are our anchor in the midst of that storm. Uh, may we be people that aren't oppressors, but that are liberators. May we be people that don't uh, define life by our own terms, but by your terms, God. And help us to put off all appearances and help us to hope in you uh, to not be put to shame, but to gaze on your beauty and your excellency and be changed um, more into more, more and to more, more and to more of who you want us to be pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So Cornerstone, I li- leave you today with those words, that he has prepared something wonderful for you. He has prepared a home for you, and it is from God, not made with human hands, and who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a guarantee of the fullness of that to come. Father, we thank you for today. We bless you. Cornerstone go in the grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in the Father's name. Amen.